Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode, we focus on one specific book about music. It could be a musician's memoir, autobiography, or a biography of a musician or group. It can even be a fictional character who happens to be a musician. And book music, this focuses on books on music or music on books. No, books on music. <laughs> Got to be very specific about this. <laughs> and Kinley, this is like sort of a, well, every show is special, but this is actually more special than the other special shows <laughs> because we're going to talk about Avalon by Simon Morrison, published by 33 and a third. And surprise, surprise, Simon is here with us. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, I think we mentioned this to you before, but Kimley and I love, no, maybe, I don't know if it's a love, maybe it's more of an obsession. Maybe it's a <laughs> violent obsession for, uh, for Roxy music. And I, I, yeah, so I'm just totally like a Roxy music. Um, I'm saying I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm a Roxy music nerd, but I think a lot about Roxy music. And um, I presume, Simon, that you think about Roxy music as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, I grew up in Canada, and um, one of the good fortunes of growing up in Canada is uh, in the record stores, there was a lot of British music. Uh, you know, the Commonwealth. And yes. um, so I remember um, their penultimate album, uh, Flesh and Blood, mm -hmm. um, coming out and hearing in a record store uh, in the midnight hour that cover. And I was immediately taken by the kind of, I don't know what it was, the texture on that cover. And uh, uh -huh. that was the beginning of my obsession with them. Is that your first Roxy Music album that you heard? Yeah, yeah, oh. the penultimate one. And then from that, I actually... Um, Got a hold of that album and started listening. Really loved it. Um, yeah, and the and then I actually, you know, moved back in time, and mm -hmm. it was a strange experience because suddenly you realize this wasn't, you know, just this sort of sensuous, popular music with a great vibe um, and very sophisticated production, but actually they were pretty eclectic and experimental, and that the mm -hmm. production on Ferry's voice changed, and you know, you learned a lot about his limitations as a singer but also um his you know great lyrics and so all of that I, I sort of it went back in time and then you know by the time i got to know the first album and i was a real geek because i actually went out and got the japanese imprints or pressings of these albums mm. you know, they had more glossy pictures and all that yeah. stuff and then and then avalon came up yeah now in the beginning of the book you do sort of defend your decision to write about this particular roxy music album which it was funny because when I saw, I, first of all, I was so thrilled that there was finally a 33 and a third on Roxy Music. It was like, yeah. what took so long? But then I thought, Avalon, hmm, that's an interesting choice because that's definitely not a favorite among the hardcore fans, but it's actually their most successful album. So. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, when it came out, I mean, I just played it and played it and played it. And I was, I was very much, you know, fascinated by that kind of, you know, the, the texture of it and the depth of the sound and the reverberation and that kind of polish and dreaminess and creaminess that he went for. And, um, you know, the, the idea of just sort of orchestrating an album uh, as perfectly as possible. And so I listened and listened and listened to it and loved it in different ways at different times. And, um, you know, I, I, the band toured that album and then obviously Brian Ferry became primarily a solo act. And um, so they, they performed in North America. And Avalon was, uh, as you know, the one album of that group that really took hold in the United States. Um, whereas previous albums had done well in Canada and other parts of obviously Europe. But Avalon was the one that really sort of achieved some sort of, I don't know, you know, it cozied up against the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, I guess, on the FM dial. Mm. And that, that so it, it did take hold. And I think the title track is considered to be one of these great sort of quote unquote baby making tracks, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, I, 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 you know, I loved it. Um, you know, I was a young teenager and, um, and, um, so the imagining that comes with all of that sort of sensuous sound was 
was something I took through. So I grew up with these albums and I was starting um, uh, what became, you know, a sort of life study music history. And um, so I, you know, I listened to all sorts of stuff growing up. Um, but uh, of the popular music that I listened to, this group was, was really dominant. And so I remembered it and remembered it and remembered it. And, uh, you know, dipped in and out of Brian Ferry and Roxy music as I got older and um, kind of paid attention to what he was doing. And, um, and then at a fortunate point um, a few years ago, I got a chance to meet him. And, mm-hmm. um, and that, was, that was the beginning of this project. So why is Avalon the book? for you for, regarding the Roxy music? For me, um, I, I think the, uh, I, I'm all interested in production and uh-huh. the history of production. And I've always thought that um, to teach a history of popular music course, uh, which is not something I do. Yeah. Um, other people do that here at Princeton. But I always thought it should, it needed to be, um, I think, taught from the perspective of producers because I, knowing all of the, you know, knowing the writing I know about popular music, a lot of it in, in the academic realm is pretty much like statistics on how many kinds of chord patterns and, and forms. And it doesn't really, doesn't, or else it's just radically about culture and, you know, what the right. scene was like in Laurel Canyon, et cetera, or, mm. or in England at Earl's Court or something. But, um, but I always thought that, yeah, the, the transformation from analog to digital and then the expansion of four track which is what the beatles had you know yeah. mm-hmm. uh to right up to whatever 64 and these sort of glam rock bands and i always thought that that was an interesting story but and with roxy music and avalon i found out from comments from band members who were sort of published interviews that you know ferry was really obsessive and did the mm-hmm. production himself and he was you know obviously visually very uh, obsessive but that um production and mixing and mixing and mixing and i think Phil Manzanera at some point quipped um, that, you know, he needed to get back to the studio. Otherwise, Brian was going to edit out all their guitar. On the record, <laughs> you know? and, and, and because, and, you know, he was such a perfectionist and obsessive. And it seemed to me that that was kind of the, re- the story of, of not, the, not so much the group, but certainly this album is yeah. like, what was he trying to achieve? You know, what kind of, he was exploring this texture and sort of, making the inside of this record bigger than the outside, you know, and, and in terms mm-hmm. of feeling and emotion. And so that's, that's kind of what drew me to sort of try and figure out how it was made. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I listened to the demos of Avalon that you talk about in the book. Um, they're on YouTube. Yeah. And uh, that was really fascinating to, to hear that and sort of, it's a real eye-opener on uh, Ferry's process of songwriting. I mean, the lyrics were obviously the last thing to come, but the way he hummed it the melodies he punctuated it exactly as it ended up for the most part um it's like he really wrote the lyrics to uh fit the way he wanted that melody to really pop and punctuate in certain places and he was i mean i i brought i found all that um when i was starting work on this and i Uh was stunned that it was out there given the amount of control he seemed to exercise and when i brought i said i said wrote to him and i said you know by the way, <laughs> I, didn't say, I didn't say, wow, it's interesting that you added the words afterwards. I said, yeah. by the way, do you know this is out there? And they, he gets seriously freaked out. And yeah. they tried they, they tried to remove it all and it just reappears. So it's out there. Yeah, I think um, it's hard to find. I had a friend find it for me that is good at finding these things. Because when I first Googled yeah. it, it didn't show up. But a yeah. friend of mine found it. And I doubt it'll be there for very long. <laughs> well, I wanted to know how it happened, like where, how, who copied these tapes so that yeah. it got posted online. And that, that I, I found out that it was the studio they used in the Bahamas that somebody uh, made a copy off the soundboard. And uh, that's kind of how it happens. Right, but yeah. the demo was all done on in the studio. It wasn't like him. It wasn't fairy noodling around at home or anything. No, the, his routine um, is interesting. He actually is a oddly an afternoon worker. Like he'll show up at at noon and leave at six, and so and he just spends the time in the studio. Oh, okay. So um, and. Uh, often alone and that's that's both the mixing process and the creative process so he's there alone making i mean it's it's because I, I definitely do not get a, a sense of a band on those demos it sounded like this him with machines and keyboards and yeah when i talked to um andy newmark 
the drummer on the album, mm-hmm. um, who's he's quite verbose and, and has strong opinions, um, and, and laments greatly the the era of the click track and digital recording and drum machines and so forth. And he he basically said that he he came in with sticks. And he made the point to me that all drum sets are the same. So you just use whatever's in the studio. It didn't matter to him. Uh-huh. And basically just played over top of what had kind of been Lynn drummed out. So uh-huh. he just recorded on top of that. And then I think it was, yeah, it was a layering process. So from this kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of vocalese humming with a sort of groove that he'd worked out, some sort uh-huh. of portal pattern. And then they sort of built it up from that. And it takes them a long time to, to come up with the lyrics. I think, I mean, I've read many times that the lyric writing process for him is, is can be difficult and very slow. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I didn't realize this, that there's, that there's still Millie Thompson who runs the studio in London. She, one of the things she's doing is trying to get like a kind of uh, the version of the lyrics because he still changes his mind about them even after the songs are recorded. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> the process of writing them continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a track they didn't put on Avalon called Always Unknowing. And it was mm-hmm. a B-side um, of, I think, the More Than This single. And I have a, a really beautiful song. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just drum machine there. Uh-huh. And you see that it's it's three quarters there. Huh. Um, and a beautiful guitar solo. And he just made it a B-side, and, and the lyrics for that are, are still unstable. So um, that's interesting. So um, I have to presume that for Brian Ferry, the song is not is never finished. He's always working on it. So when you see a live performance, the lyrics could be different? Um, I, I, when I've seen him, I've seen him like three or four times and obviously watched a lot of videos. The, the live shows there are pretty controlled. I mean, I don't see a lot of variance with that because mm-hmm. I think he, he just, um, he's, he's, you know, the control aspect and live performance is actually something that has a lot of variables and can be very frustrating with him. Mm-hmm. And so when I hung out with him after he did a show in Manchester and um, there I kind of went, before, during, after, through the sound check and everything, and then went to the after party, and then after that, went in his car back to and he hung out with the band and so forth. And it was mostly he had a lot of issues with the set list, mm-hmm. um, the order of songs, and what went right and what went wrong, and and you know these things that go wrong. So I he didn't seem I didn't notice any changes in the lyrics, mm-hmm. but I know that in terms of his studio work exactly you're exactly right i mean it's like he's still kind of working on these songs and he's still you know that one of the one of the raps about him is that his solo career has been about kind of remaking over and over again avalon and there's some truth to that in the sense that mm. there's some process that he's working out or some aesthetic that, that he's never sort of concluded and um mm. he's even sampled himself uh-huh. over and over again you know so um, i do think it's like a kind of broader process when I heard Boys and Girls, I guess that's, you know, his the solo album he did after Avalon, it felt like not exactly Avalon part two, but like more of Avalon, but more textured even, more everything. Yeah, I think Windswept, which is on that album and is right before Boys and Girls, I think that that was actually conceived around Avalon. So there was like some overlap there, a lot of that material. Right. So this gets kind of confusing. I mean, you know, when you know Brian Ferry had his solo records, which were always cover songs, like his first album, second album, and then slowly but surely he started adding his original songs to these cover records. You know, and and then it becomes sort of totally confusing. I mean, I'm not clearly understand why Brian Ferry does a solo album, especially in in the '70s, especially when he started writing songs for that solo album. And they're not that. Um, I always thought they it, it could have easily fit on a Roxy Music album. You mean some of the some of the songs that he wrote that he wrote rather than covered? Yes. Uh huh. I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm trying to think of the second album, um, Another Place, Another Time. What was it called? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. There was there was a lot of material that. Um, I, my sense of of the band was. I mean, there, there was it's hard to actually pinpoint where the, the group was at its most stable. I think the third album, maybe mm-hmm. Siren is where they, they gelled, even though Brian Eno at that point was gone. But 
there was um, a lot of disgruntlement um, throughout the course of Roxy Music about um, him being the auteur, you know, being controlling right. everything. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these kind of songs that um, he worked out with other musicians or that he tried out in these sort of solo gigs where he was just doing covers. I mean, because part of his self-creation is the idea of kind of manufacturing a kind of British crooner image and yes. going out there and doing that. I mean, he really liked that, you know, sort mm-hmm. of doing the kind of tuxedo circuit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't where the band was. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, I think, there was this sort of coming together of that kind of idea that he was this sort of last romantic and then this sound that was highly textured and polished. And then that rankled too, because, you know, um, the original drummer Thompson, he, he was not down with that. I mean, he was a rock and roll drummer and he was all about John Bonham and he, you know, that the idea of turning into this kind of luxurious machine of music forged out of a single piece of steel or whatever you want to call it. That was just not where he was at. Right. Um, he wanted to rock out and jam it up. And, and uh, Manzanera, you know, got frustrated too and ended up doing, you know, really interesting, wonderful solo material that explored his roots mm-hmm. and was not about. So once Barry, once I think Ferry started to um, dominate uh, all aspects mm-hmm. of those things, I think that was the end of the band. But there were seeds of that all the way along. You know what's really unusual about the Roxy music world, at least in my my feelings you know i purchased all the solo albums i mean i purchased the brian ferry albums as well as roxy music but i bought the andy mckay stuff i bought the film <laughs> i bought the eno you know, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think i even have the bass one of the million bass players solo single <laughs> and I, I was so roxy music and i never felt um I mean, the band was so complex to me. It, it, um, I love those records. I love the solo records, even. Um, how do you feel about the solo albums? I mean, do you like do you like Eno, for instance, or or the Andy McKay record? The Andy McKay one. This is the Eddie Riff album. Yeah. The I think it's a little unfortunate. <laughs> I, I like it, you know, because it reminds me of. Um, I think like Brian Ferry is like a hybrid of like certain styles. I, I like the Andy McKay because it's like fifties rock and roll. Yeah. Wagner. Yeah. And, but it's yeah. done like filtered through like a Joe Meek production sound to me, you know, with, with Eno overtures on it. So to yeah, me, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an eclectic goofy album. Yeah. Your cover on there. And I think there, there was a kind of a single, which was like, I don't know what it was called. Don's party or something, but uh-huh. it was, yeah. you know, just this kind of like, uh, shindig on the saxophone um i i mean he was he was a you know mckay's a good technician and obviously played uh, english horn beautifully as well as saxophone mm-hmm. i i love um the strangeness of of some of the fairy albums the one he did recorded partly out in la um, yes. is bride strip bear love it and that's a great album. Yeah. yeah. This This Island Earth is a wonderful song. And the best song I think he ever wrote is when she walks in the room um, yeah. with a sort of string quartet. And it's just just miraculous piece of songwriting. And that I don't think he could have written for the band. I mean, that was just, just him. And, you know, yeah, and that great. album is half originals and half covers as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great album. I love it. He did an album, a Dylan cover album, as a solo. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the we deal love that. with that, the deal with that was that um, the the label in London actually wanted him to generate, you know, more sales than he was doing uh, on on the independent stuff, and so mm-hmm. he defaulted oh. to doing this kind of Dylan Dylan album as a kind of contractual obligation. Really That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did it end up doing better for them? I think so. I mean, he's always had stable sales of the solo stuff. Right, so, right. But um, I think the uh, what the albums that didn't do so well are those kind of jazz remixes where he's done this sort of, you know, bittersweet uh, where he takes his own songs and turns it into a 20s sort of jazz. Yeah, I love those. <laughs> They're great. I love them too. Yeah, but yeah. you know, For me, those are Brian Ferry masterpieces. Yeah. I love, love the Brian Ferry Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's yeah. great. You know, every time I've seen him, it's always been at a pretty sizable venue and it's always been full. I've never uh he's never seemed to have trouble drawing an audience, that's for sure. No, and he's done but he's done um I know I, I, he's done runouts to Russia for things. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I was wow. talking to the Guardian um 
Sean Walker is a reporter for the Guardian. He said that uh, he said that he was at some oligarchs event. And at some point, this guy came out with a Russian accent and said, oh, Brian Ferry. And then he <laughs> came out and did a set. And apparently, he was just sort of flown in, you know, and paid a bunch. Wow. Flew out again. And so he's done that kind of thing uh, for, I guess, a lucrative fee. But yeah, he's got, I mean, the New York shows I've seen, the UK, obviously, and Los Angeles. Hmm. Hollywood Bowl. I mean, it's pretty full when I... <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a huge fan. I asked him if he liked that, like if he if he... You know, I the one time I, I had this dinner with him at Earl's Court, and so I was able to ask him, like, you know, various things about performing and whether crowd size is something he notices. And he, you know, the Hollywood Bowl, he said the difficulty was how far away the audience was. So he does like to yeah. sort of closer mm-hmm. up. And he said the worst gig he ever did was the Live Aid thing, which is oh, a massive yeah. Wembley Stadium, yeah. and it was just catastrophically mic. And he had no control, I imagine. I mean, it's like, you know, he's told them, you know, do the, you know, only two or three songs and he had probably no control over the sound. Monitor or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's for him, yeah, control. And even, even this book, right. Uh, I, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, I said, I initially, you know, how I met him was, was that um, I was, and did it ultimately. I was interested in Cole Porter. In fact, Cole Porter did a ballet in his early career. And I knew that Brian Ferry had recorded Cole Porter covers. Mm-hmm. And strangely, um, the lawyer um, associated with uh, Cole Porter and a few other um, you know, artists, living artists, as well as deceased uh, in the UK, um, was also involved with a composer that I studied, Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. And anyway, through a series of conversations, I actually wrote to Brian Ferry out of the blue and said, I'm a great fan of your music and all this. And I know you've done Cole Porter, you know, I'm actually going to realize this score from manuscript of this quote unquote lost ballet by Cole Porter. Would you be interested in maybe doing it with the Brian Ferry Orchestra? And mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't work out because of the Cole Porter estate didn't want the score to be chopped up and, and interspersed with other stuff, which mm-hmm. is what Ferry wanted to do. But anyway, I stayed in cu- touch with him based on that. And then um, uh, when I was asked to, to do this, um, when you know Bloomsbury was interested in doing something on Roxy music, and I immediately thought of Avalon, and so I, I just ran it by him and said, "What do you think? Do you mind if I write an out a book about, you know, Avalon? That is to say, do you mind if I pester you with questions as I do mm-hmm. it?" And he says, "Please, please proceed." <laughs> so, oh, nice. <laughs> better than if you insist. <laughs> Please proceed. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Very laconic on email. Uh (laughs) Did you have the dates when you were in New York recording Avalon? The answer was no dates. (laughs) Very straightforward person. Yeah, yeah. Got a simple answer. (laughs) Now it was interesting when you were talking about their 2001 reunion tour, which I was fortunate enough to see, and I actually almost didn't go because I'm kind of one of those people who sort of is a little wary of nostalgia, you know, like, oh, you know, it's like, is it going to, you know, is it really going to be worth it? But it ended up being a fantastic show. But I love what you said. You said Roxy Music became its own tribute band, turning the irony of the tribute band phenomenon on its head, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you kind of say uh, they're (laughs) making fun of themselves in a way? (laughs) I, that's the one thing with Brian Ferry. I mean, I think the Sasha Frere Jones and other critics have always wondered, right? Like to what degree does he buy this whole like kind of aesthetic and uh, the, the sort of, um, the kind of highfalutin kind of class, you know, aspect of it. And, um, you know, to what degree does he embody the image that he projects or is he different from that? And yeah. uh, uh, the times I've met him, it's, he's been, as Josh, I'm sure, can attest, he's, he's pretty old school, very gentlemanly. You know, yes. Very proper. Yes. Um, I remember there was this great story where he was on a plane um, with his kids for his four sons. And uh, it was it was an altercation on the plane in which somebody stormed the cockpit. Right, Ooh. it was a very yeah. dangerous situation. And his boys started to swear, you know, about what was going on. And as this was happening on the plane, right, this kind mm-hmm. of pseudo terrorist attack that ended okay. Brian started, you know, he's 
He's reprimanding his sons for using profanity. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> no, that, I remember when that happened. And actually, the, the picture was on, like, I think uh, the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Like, you know, somebody took a photograph on the plane. And it was Brian Ferry, but it, was, it wasn't identified as Brian Ferry. It was just, you know, a, a, a person on the plane witnessing this. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's Brian Ferry. And even in a, in a moment of crisis and he's about to die, he looks so much like Brian Ferry. Uh, you still, the, the tie is not going to get, you know. No. <laughs> Stiff upper lip. <laughs> he put a jacket on. Oh, man. You know, his mantra, I think, is like Kurt Vonnegut's mantra, which mm. is like, you know, what is, someone asked Kurt Vonnegut, what's the moral of your, moral story of all the things you've written? He said, courtesy, he said, love may fail, but courtesy will prevail. And I thought, <laughs> that's a fairy's aesthetic, you know, right? uh, That's great. But yeah, Avalon is, is Kimberly, were we working at a record store when Avalon came out? I think. It had already been out, but it was, we were, we met in 83, Tasha oh, okay. store in 83. So it was out, but it Thank was you. still playing a lot because, you know, right. in the U.S. it sort of had that slow progression of, you know, it just kept right. playing for many years. It was always a big seller at our store. I, I remember Avalon. I mean, though it originally came out in vinyl in 82 and then in 83, it came out in CD, you know, like, oh, yeah. like months later, a year later. One of the first CDs. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And that. that was the album for people to test their expensive hi-fi on. <laughs> I remember you know, customers coming to the record store, and they're you know like, we need some, we need something to, <laughs> to show how great the CD it sound is, or or the record is, you know. And uh-huh. it's it's either Avalon or Michael Jackson's Thriller. Mm-hmm. And then a record at the time that was a couple of years older is, is like Aja or Gaucho by Steely Dan. Uh, yeah, superb production. And so, yeah, I was going to bring this up. So in that time period, like not only like Brian Ferry, but like Quincy Jones with Thriller and Michael Jackson and Steely Dan, there's this sort of cool, uh, seductive new, for me, it's almost, you know, it's like a new production. It's like almost um, wallpaper music. Uh, you know, ambient in a way, but you know, it's it's songs, but it but it's this beautifully textured recorded music. Yeah, and I think I mean, in the case of, I mean, the studios and um, the wizards that these studios employed, New York, uh, there in Los Angeles, Bob Clearinghouse, who is kind of the mastermind for yeah production, post production on Avalon. Um, you know, really obsessed over this. And the, the stories about how they, they, for maximum reverb, they can reconfigure the, space, the power plant in New York for this incredible echo, echo effect. So I think that they were, you know, uh, recognizing not only the transformation in, in, you know, sound and bandwidth on FM, but also like the, the quality of sound people were expecting or had at home. And so we're trying to exploit that. But, you know, I, it's for me, it's a kind of utopian sound. I mean, everything is perfect, you know, and mm-hmm. it, that never turned into reality. You know, that kind of beautiful right. space that those albums are. And it's like, I, I think we're still we're still trying to get to 1979 <laughs> in terms of, yeah. you know, what the, these, the, rep, the experiences and, and feelings and emotions and sentiment that these albums kind of expressed. Uh, Clearinghouse, uh, who did this production work with Barry, um, just... About a year ago, he put out a 5.1 remix of Avalon uh-huh. you know, for you know the current setup, and it just sounds astonishing. Even more perfect. Yeah, and there was one, but they had they had the masters uh-huh. for all but one track, and, uh-huh. um, and so and then one of them they had to kind of you know, manufacture in there. But they cheated um, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you like? I mean, I pr- actually prefer. I mean, I liked Avalon a lot, but but I definitely more of a fan of the earlier albums. You know, I, I really love like the first two albums. I love Stranded and Avalon I really like, but it's not an album that I ever feel really that close to. And I think because as much as you admire that that, that production, I, I, I find it troubling for some reason. It's not, um, it doesn't pull me in for some reason and I'm totally in the minority. No, I, I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, to some degree that the experience and um you know i am I'm, I'm waiting for the day that somebody uh, kind of looks at this 
this group and fairy from you know a gender perspective because you know this kind of romanticism and sensuality um and the kind of images the yeah. beauty that he's representing you know i think i think feminist scholars could play badminton with that yeah. but um the the there is that kind of seductive pull which you know i think maybe yeah one can maybe wants to resist a little bit where and the one thing i did notice is my my approach to doing this this book short book was actually to sit at the piano and then figure out like how the song the notes right just mm. and I, I the uh, the interesting thing is the earlier albums they're far richer in terms uh-huh. of harmony chord changes key changes um they're far more like um, yeah in terms of musical language sophisticated and then the production become replaces that you know uh-huh. so it's kind of like the albums become more painterly uh, certainly the yes. last three albums at the expense of um really wonderful kind of harmonic moves and eclecticism like mm-hmm. sunset that album or mother of pearl these odd and kind of weird warping of effects that are really captivating that, yes. that goes away he decided for some reason i think it might have been commercial to uh, to skip a lot of that. Yes, it makes me a little bit sad, but I understand. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I actually pulled a quote from the book that you, where you're talking about that you said Roxy Music's other records are more carnal, and then you say the 37 minutes and 31 seconds of Avalon instead indulge the Platonic ideal of Eros and the cult of the most beautiful lady, the eternal feminine. And I think that really sort of captures the difference. It's like, yeah, for me, I mean, I, I love Avalon too, but I also feel that the earlier albums were definitely more artistically experimental and intriguing to me. But on the other hand, sometimes there's just like, I really want to listen to Avalon. That's exactly like the music I want to listen to for whatever reason. Yeah. So, you know, it, it is interesting. They both have different pulls, I think. Yeah, and and very different. And I, um, yeah, I found the earlier albums because they're more challenging and interesting. There are they're harder to get to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surprised. I mean, when you listen to the first album, how willing he was as a singer to sound thin and stressed, and you know, on all of that stuff, because that's you know, it was about actually being roughed up and being a rougher right. sound, more right. eclectic and ironic and arch. And then all of that got washed away. And I think he had a the influence of the other musicians was stronger early on. Yes. Um, mm-hmm where they were kind of, you know, it was like the PhD approach to writing right. pop music, you know, so they studied like performance, they were like performance studies, people who went in there and decided to sort of, I don't know, unpack or deconstruct a lot of pop history. When I first heard Roxy Music, I bought the album, you know, the first album when it came out, because I was intrigued by their visuals. <laughs> and I think the catchphrase, like, they sound like Marcel Duchamp and Smokey Robinson. So those two names really meant, okay, it's going to be interesting. So I put the album on, and only a few times this has happened to me um, where I'm listening to something and thinking, oh, my God, I never heard anything like this before. Two, it's like, this is now. This is 1972. This is not like music from the past. This is like 1972, present to the future, perhaps. And, you know, the, the mixture of nostalgia in his lyrics and image that, totally being modernistic at the same time was almost like an overwhelming experience that when I heard the first album, you know, the first time. And yeah. very rarely have I heard anything, maybe a handful more of artists who, who affected me by the first listen. But that yeah, album... The first album, the second album, you know, the song about the inflatable doll. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. With that big freak out at the end. It was, it was kind of disturbing. Very <laughs> 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 young like, you're like, what, what, is, what is going on here? <laughs> and, uh, and why would he, you know, the, in every dream, home a heartache, it's a, great, it's a great line. And the lyrics to that are great. And it, it's really subversive, you know, yeah. and, um, and kind of comically so. And it's not... Yeah not something they would do later on you know? no and strange enough that's brian ferry's favorite album for your pleasure yeah i mean they, among, you know several oh, and groups that, that's that, his he comes out and says that that's his favorite yes many times mm-hmm. oh i didn't know that oh that's interesting so that eno said his favorite album was siren yes <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hysterical I think, <laughs> Maybe that's that's his comment there. Or uh, I actually, what one of the things I was corrected on by by Ferry was I assumed that you know they him and Eno had fallen out and they didn't really 
you know, communicate, but they, they maintained a connection all the way through. And um, so that even more recently he did, you know, provided some, you know, effects yeah. for a couple of his songs, but right. they just, you know, they really respected what, what Eno got up to on his own in terms of this kind of ambient you know, sound. And it's odd how Eno left Roxy Music, the experimental band, and ends up becoming the great ambient artist. And Brian Ferry becomes the great ambient pop artist. <laughs> I mean, and they, yeah. they end up kind of embracing something of the same. They do. I don't find them that far apart, to tell you the truth. I find mm-hmm. them, you know, they're both like visually orientated. They both are into sort of ambient sounds and um but definitely Eno will have nothing to do on Avalon. I mean it's totally like <laughs> Eno's not invited album. <laughs> yeah. I seem to recall hearing a story though that when the movie Velvet Goldmine came out with a lot of Roxy and Eno songs in it that they saw it together. <laughs> yeah. I could be yeah. mistaken about that, but I believe I heard something about them going to see that together. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, the way the way uh, I I did this book. One of the things I did was, you know, I write up an analysis of the songs and mm-hmm. send right. it to Manzanera. So does this write in terms of the description? Oh. So that's how it it actually worked. I kind of showed nice. and then got correction because. So you communicated with Phil Manzanera and 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 I know the drummer. Did you did you communicate with Andy McKay? Um, I actually just sent a couple of questions into the studio, which got answered via him. Uh-huh. Uh, he was busy doing this um, uh, album of kind of orchestral versions yes. of some Roxy music songs. Um, so he was busy with that. And then he did a kind of odd spiritual thing. Right. He'd become very religious. And um, so I didn't I didn't feel so much a need to kind of... Uh-huh work on that i mean uh-huh. it was in, i one of the brian went into depth about how the last track tara was conceived and um and uh, that it was just randomly mckay in the studio just improvising uh-huh. he said he just just flicked on the mic in the live room and captured it uh-huh. um so that was just a strangely kind of um, yeah chancy development just happened Hmm. Um, and that, that was kind of what I needed to know from his side. So that, that kind of question was answered for me. And then the actual, you know, I had some just basic questions about mics and saxophones and so forth. So I didn't need to ask him too much. Uh He's, he's the quieter trio. Manzanera is a technician, a guitarist, guitarist. So uh-huh. if you go if you go at him with specific guitar questions, you get answers. It's very interesting. The big difference between Roxy music and Brian Ferry solo is one thing to me. Because when you see Brian Ferry, especially in the in the seventies and eighties, it's usually every member of Roxy music, including Paul Thompson, but no Andy McKay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did like, a lot of songwriting and he's he's mm-hmm. as a player he's a less is more player. Uh-huh. Um Georgia Chalmers who's replaced him and um also records solo albums. Um uh, she she really liked his kind of discretion uh, as a, as a sax player but yeah, he was um I think he I don't know. He didn't. He wasn't very much involved in the creative process, even to the degree that man's an hmm. I, I liked all the B sides of Roxy music that never became, you know, uh, actually album tracks. There's actually a great Andy McKay instrumental. Uh, I think the B side of Pajama Rama. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. that's a great track. You're right. Yeah. The, the Morricone sounding. You know, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um... You know, I, one of it's one of those things that people always say, oh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. But listening to B-sides, I've always concluded the rest, that the whole is less than the sum of the parts yeah. because there's so much fascinating possibilities. Yes. And, you know, that always unknowing track is one of them. But the B-sides, I think they've been packaged up in different ways. Yeah, uh, like CD anthologies. Yeah, yeah. and they're, they're, they're wonderful. And even like I mentioned, uh, Georgia Chalmers, who's the saxophonist now for Brian Ferry. And, mm-hmm. She took, she just released an album uh, called Midnight Train, which is the title of a fairy track. And obviously many other Midnight Trains are out there. Mm-hmm. But um, she sampled Windswept, oh. slowed it down, and it became the single from this album. So this, 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 this flotsam, if you will, right. is, just have a kind of afterlife. Brian Ferry's choice of musicians to work with is, is like awesome. I mean, it's um, they're the best of the best. You know, like he has so many great guitar players working with him. Yeah, what what uh, 
what happens is um, he, his sons actually now, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're big clubbers and uh, they go and check out acts. And if there's somebody they really like, they'll, you know, sometimes invite them to come along for an audition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's how he got Georgia. And that's how he got, you know, the young guitarist that plays in solo is, you know, just sort of picking up these, these incredible players. Um, you know, it's one of the, I, one of the things I loved writing about in this book was the the video for Avalon. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, which, <laughs> you, you got me to go look at that again. I was like, they yeah. hate. <laughs> Apparently, it was all like it was a, and I actually the guy who made the video, I got a hold of him, and he's you know, in his seventies or whatever, and he was unabashed about the fact that you know he had a vision for this thing, and they went out to some estate and recorded, and that um, they had that young model who's mm-hmm. exactly my age was born on the same day with stars in that and um but you know i wondered who's in the video playing these instruments i mean because you see manzanera right. there yeah, and he's nice in a tuxedo brian ferry obviously this beautiful young lady but there's this drummer in the tuxedo with right. <laughs> and i said i wrote to andy Mc, andy newark that said so is that you <laughs> <In the video? laughs> because you know you don't look like that and he said he said Brian's very image conscious. So they basically oh, got some wow. model to go in there and and do that part because for this for this uh, setup. But... Yeah, because they actually had a lot of close-ups of the drummer, which was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, who, who is that guy? <laughs> is that Toto's drummer? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but yeah, no, he was. They just uh, and and initially said. Andy said, well, I, I actually couldn't make the shoot that day. So they got a sub and then later on. He, found <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't, you know, vogue enough. For, uh, for, uh, that's funny. That's so funny. Yeah, I don't think that, the video really stands the test of time. <laughs> yeah. It's very he, much he, of he, its he, era. <laughs> really the, the plot of it, um, everything about it, he just didn't like it at all. So, yeah. you know, when I asked who was going to write about that, they were like, you know, actually ran wanted to ask some, ask some questions of the studio and I'm like, we hate that video. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up an artist, uh, Linder, who I know of. Uh, she's a Manchurian artist. She had a band, I think called Ludus, I think the name yeah. And yeah. she she was connected to uh, Howard Devoto magazine and the Buzzcocks, of course. And then uh, at the same time or later was Morrissey. But you, you brought her name up in, in, in the context of uh, Roxy music. Um, what were the reasons for that? Or what, why Linda? Um, well, because I, was, I thought it was strange that given her aesthetic mm-hmm. um, um, and given her challenge to the patriarchy in different yeah. ways, you know, why she actually said she loved Roxy music so much. You know, mm-hmm. She said in an interview. And, and I... Um, you know, she pointed out, I think, in a comment somewhere that that she she always thought there was something really kind of progressively arch about um, about Roxy Music and Brian Ferry and his you know relationship with women. You know, mm-hmm. there was something kind of ironic and uh, about being the kind of cat or the loser or whatever that she really appreciated. And then I found out that what she was all about actually was the idea, not that so much as the fact that it's those first two albums. Uh-huh. You know, with those wonderful, crazy modernist sound effects, which were kind of, you know, like bits and pieces of recorded noises and so forth added to the mix and all of that Eno stuff. And, mm-hmm. and these, you know, that that was actually something for her in terms of a visual artist, which was really influential as far as a musician. So that's where I picked that up from. Oh, um, I see. But it's, there's no, there was no direct connection right. besides her appreciation of it. And I, you know, I was kind of um, interested to see whether or not, um, you know, what other artists, women artists, female artists now who, you know, uh, you know, are very prominent, yeah. uh, what the connection was to him initially, you know, like say Sonic Youth, did they draw anything from, from early Roxy Music? Well, gosh, Roxy Music, is so, many, so many bands, I mean, I think like a magazine, you know, obviously Duran Duran, uh, really yeah. obviously Japan, the band. Yeah. They're all from the foundation that is Roxy music, you know, yeah. um, and their importance to like pop culture is, you know, it's just so essential. And I think to this day, you know, they have, a, they have, a, they have like an orchestrated sound, you know, the, the mixture of the guitar, of the, uh, the oboe, sax, Eno stuff, uh, even, you know, Eddie Jobson afterwards. It's a beautiful blend of sounds together. And I think that's what that, 
is what I find really appealing. And I guess in that sense, Avalon works in that mode as well. Exactly. The one, the one thing I think the way there's a real difference between what he wanted and what the band members wanted was that idea that, and it's what happens when you see their shows, the production, the mixing is so great, even live. Yeah. You don't know who's playing what, Yes. what sounds are being generated by what instrument. And that's what he wanted is this kind of, uh, concept unified concept right um, this experience and as opposed to more i guess individualized eclectic diverse perf playing which certainly marked the early albums and the early albums i mean these were a group of art students yes who um they weren't like blue collar like he always represents his upbringing but you know they were right. just art students and uh, they they approached music popular music from the things you said, you know, they, they studied Duchamp, they studied Salvador right. Dali. He met Salvador Dali, you know. Yes. Um, and an approach to that way. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Eddie McKay himself has a strong background in electronic music. and Yeah, and he did that little academic book about electronic music. Yes, yes, I think I have it somewhere. <laughs> a little out of date. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> But um, yeah, it's a fascinating world. One thing I was kind of surprised, I'm not surprised, but I, was doing, I, was, I find it interesting when I see interviews with him recently in London, it always takes place in his office or studio, the Studio One. Mm-hmm. And I slowly realized that Studio One is actually kind of a big deal for him. It's sort of not only a recording studio, but it's not only his office, but it's also, I'm presuming, where he keeps the Brian Perry costumes and original instruments and and things of that sort. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, um, he has um, country house and he has um, an apartment near Earl's Court and um, which is not so far from where that studio is mm-hmm. in London. And um, when you go into it, um, uh, it's, it's, I think it, it's not often used by other musicians. So right. it's, it's his studio and he owns it. And inside there's, um, besides um, an archive of photographs, incredible. I was able to browse through like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the years that Brian Ferry was bearded <laughs> that you don't see too much. I remember those years. Yeah, but um, <laughs> incredible amount of images that they uh-huh. have on disc and, and um, they have um, the album covers and, you know, various kind of, it's, it's kind of an art gallery. Yes. But, and then they have um, real recordings. They have the original drum set from the first album is still in there. And, you know, a lot of these original instruments, the synths that, um, you know, used is in there. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of an archive in the sense of the actual instruments. And then there's also a lot of merch, you know, they have space to, for, you know, you know, spare copies of CDs and albums and, and there's costumes mm-hmm. and things in there as well. So it's a, a fairly big studio and part of it is, you know, the reception office part and mm-hmm. then one side of it is merch and costumes and so forth. And then there's the actual working studio. And when I was in there last, I've been in there twice, um, they, the engineer production guy that works there was busy putting together it was just released was that live at Albert Hall concert from the seventies, yeah. which is uh-huh. an amazing concert. And he was all about that. So there's a lot of actually work to kind of release in different ways, the archive of the band. Mm, well, that's exciting. I think it's odd that they never really got the same kind of traction in the U S as they did in the UK. Um, I would have thought they would have had a lot of the same listeners as Bowie. And, and I think some of their stuff is even really sort of more accessible, like do the strand and street life and love is the drug. Why do you think they never really kind of took hold here? I mean, Avalon is the best. They, that was the closest, you know, and that was probably their most mainstream album, but even that wasn't huge in the sense of, you know, being a, you know, top, you know, 10. Yeah. It wasn't number one here. It was number one in Canada. Uh, that's that's a question that that's baffled them, um, especially compared to Bowie. Uh, they had success. Love is a drug was was a hit. Um, there's Dance Away, right? Dance Away mm-hmm. the from mm-hmm. Manifesto, um, and then um, nothing from Flesh and Blood uh, mm-hmm. caught here, um, which is odd. And then obviously Avalon did well. And I don't know. I thought about that in different ways, and I thought. Was there an issue? Maybe it was something to do with the label they were on um, in terms mm. of the push of the albums onto playlists. But my understanding of, um, uh, besides that, in terms of the amount of push that a label had in the American market, was that 
things were kind of in terms of mom and pop in terms of like whether or not a single but singles were sent out to various stu- various radio mm-hmm. stations and all sorts of places and if so and so in Missouri decided to hey you know what this John Wade album that song missing you isn't bad mm-hmm. and an album that had completely flopped and fallen off the charts and starts playing it and then it picks up and it becomes the number one single so there's mm-hmm. there is a sometimes mm-hmm. there was a little bit of a chance element in this sort of period yeah but I, you know, they they didn't tour a lot in the states. They, no. they had a following, but it was, yeah. you know, more cultish and college stadium. Obviously, they didn't do Americana yeah. in any sense. And whereas Elton John, for example, did. yeah, I I saw Roxy Music on their country, um, uh, uh, country life, yeah, country life tour, oh, wow. and mm. and. Before that, they did a tour when the first album came out with Brian Eno. They played the Whiskey of Gogo in Los Angeles. And then it took like, you know, um, Country Life is their fifth album. So it took like two years before they started another tour. I mean, you know, to start touring in the U.S. afterwards. So, so they really didn't work hard to break into the American market that time. No, they had big in Germany. They were big in Germany. That's why Country Life, the, mm-hmm. the cover with those two pretty nude girls, is, they were two fans of theirs in Germany just showed up and said, hey, we want to. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and then that, that cover was more or less banned in the United States. Um, So, um, yeah, and they did Japan, they did, you know, even Australia, and they had these runs. And then in the States, they were the opening act, um, you know, uh, for odd group like Jethro Tull and things like that. So uh, I don't know how well those events went. Um, But I think, yeah, the fact that you saw them on Whiskey Go Go, um, I don't think they played the Troubadour, but uh, that must have been great a concert. I well, I didn't see. The, I didn't go see them at the whiskey. I I missed it uh, for some horrific reason. I'm sure, but I did mm-hmm. see them at the San Monica Civic Country Life, and it was like uh, it was incredible. Well, I said I asked him. I said, "Do you like?" I always I said, "Do you like playing in L.A.?" I said to him, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I saw him after the Hollywood Bowl show, and he goes, "I said, you, he goes," and he. <laughs> He's always sort of down about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked him about Manchester. I said, "Did you like? Do you like playing in Manchester?" He goes, "Oh, it's a godforsaken place." You know? <laughs> do you like playing in LA? He goes, "No, most of the most of the venues have been horrible." <laughs> so, wow. But you know, the bowl he liked. I, I don't know. But oh, um, so I don't know if he's just being you know deadpan or whatever. No, I don't think he is. Yeah, I think that's really him. I mean, I yeah, I don't know him. I met him a couple of times, so there's no way I would know this. But uh, what I've heard from other people, he is kind of uh, self-critical and, you know, he's not a happy camper type of person. He's not like, no, you know, no, I've emailed him like randomly about things, you know, mm-hmm. he wrote to me and wished me happy birthday once. And I just like, I wrote, I had to ask him about some gig that they'd done after Hall. They were in San Francisco. And rather than answer the question, he just talked about the view from the hotel room and how beautiful it was to see the bridge. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was this kind of moodiness. And before shows, he'll find an art gallery to go to. Yes. And wander it. And, um, yeah. you know, very, very interior. And increasingly, he doesn't like doing the after-party stuff or the after-show stuff, I think, because of his voice, but preserving his voice. But he always wears that scar. Shy person, and the dress up of the early days was, you know, what people do when they're shy. You know, right, um, right. I always feel like he's one of the hardest working men in show business, though. I mean, when you go see him, it's a show. I mean, he really puts on a show. It's not. I mean, you can feel there's always an energy to every single time I've seen him. I've seen. I saw the Roxy, the 2001 reunion, and I've seen him several times. Um, on solo tours and it's just I'm always bowled over by how much energy is in the show and I've only seen him when he's been older I've never seen him I never got to see him when he was younger so yeah I think that that reunion tour and the videos I mean you can see the whole concert that was in London I think it was the last show on that reunion tour yeah fantastic I don't think they ever played better yeah that was the way the way they went out was just fabulous they went out with for your pleasure and uh yeah, it's such a great band that all female, you know, <laughs> horn section and, 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 and keyboardists. And then you have Chris Bedding, a great yeah. guitarist with Phil Manzanera. I, mean, I know, that's amazing. I mean, he, <laughs> he really has, he always has a fantastic band behind him. Yeah, top of the line. Top and, of the line. And that's, that's, that's part of the reason why he can, um, 
you know, play at an older age. You know, he's confident. I mean, he has these band members all know that music and they can orchestrate it. I mean, there was at the Greek theater, um, they had Fonzie Thornton, who was the original singer on Avalon doing that, you know, mm-hmm. what is that? that's him, that's it, you know, that little mm-hmm. riff in the chorus. And something got cocked up with that. They got out of sync. Ooh. And it was like they were off. And Brian swiveled and looked at Georgia, the sax player, and she went over there across the stage like hot foot and just blew the line on the saxophone to, to get them locked back in. Oh, jeez. So there was that, like that, you know, that could have unraveled. And she this is like three seconds and I got it back together. Right. These are professionals. But, you know, and I, don't think, I don't think, yeah, he was too pleased with that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. Don't mess with Brian Perry or James Brown. Yeah, I feel like he's like, he's another version of James Brown, you know? It's just like, he's a perfectionist. He works so hard. He's got such a high level of energy. Doesn't stop, you know? It's like, they're always really long shows. and Right. Yeah. You know, speaking of the guitarist, I, I brought this up a little bit, but on his, like, Boys and Girls and his other solo albums afterwards, he has, like, so many guitars on one track of, like, great guitarists. The strong person was a strong individual sounds, but it ends up just becoming orchestrated guitars, or it becomes orchestrated. You know, it becomes part of the mix. What? Yeah. What? What about? What I heard about that um, was um, there's two. I think two ideas. One is to um, orchestrate, as you say, right, just to blend the sounds of the guitars until you know you're not. You don't know if you're listening to Les Paul or whatever gets yeah. where they blend, but also the way you know he'll have different guitarists come in and play the line, you know, and just they'll show up and in what in one studio because he moves around, right? So uh-huh. some of these songs, even though he he loves Studio One, um, he'll occasionally they will move into another studio for a couple of days if he's got something that he wants to get done, and they'll just bring in some studio musician and work out a line or do something or capture it, and then when it comes down to actually producing it, you know, there's on some instances, you know, it's it's so blended. Right. That, you know, you don't know who to credit, so you just credit everybody. Yeah. <laughs> a long list. Andy Newmark couldn't remember if he was the drummer on uh, Always Unknowing. And I said, well, I think it's a Lynn drum, right? Uh-huh. And he says, well, send it to me. He says, I don't have anything at home. I don't even, I don't keep anything. Uh-huh. So I sent it to him. And um, he said, yeah, there's live drumming there. But he couldn't, he still couldn't remember if it was him. And then he listened to it again and again. And there was something about the stick work that he said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. But it could have been somebody else. I think Johnny Marr, who did a session with Brian Ferry, couldn't tell what guitar, after it was finished, if he played on it or where he is in the mix. He's somewhere there. Niall Rogers, more interestingly, right? Uh-huh. And it's right off of working with Daft Punk. Uh-huh. He's in there. He's in London doing stuff for <laughs> right. Yeah, that yeah. was interesting. You talk in the book about how uh, Nile Rogers was so influenced by uh, Roxy, yeah. which yeah. I didn't Sheik, know. Sheik, I mean, which yeah. was an all-time astonishing great group. Uh-huh. Um, you know, greatest dancer. Those tracks you listen to, they're just absolutely infectious, and it's that chicka 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 yeah 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 our plan yeah, that he put together. Yeah. Right, you hear just the action. Doesn't matter about the notes. Just the um, but yeah, that look of chic, that aesthetic, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kind of over the top fashion sense yeah. and the eclecticism of it, he said it was like all 1972, 73 rocks music. And yeah. so when Brian Ferry, I think, I think, uh, Niles made some positive comments about that influence. And I think then, uh, the Ferry people reached out to him and had him do a couple of things on one of the solo yeah. records and Gavin Moore. I like how that circular influence there is so great. (laughs) And Duran Duran, their influence was chic and Roxy music. Yeah. um, Yeah. And in terms of, in terms of the, yeah, that's kind of the the work with the synthesizers and the production work. Yeah. You know, they were far more, Duran Duran was far more reliant on others. Yes. There's actually the parallel book that came out in the series is on Rio Mm -hmm. and the story uh, that Annie, uh, tells of that was basically this band was, you know, looking for a sequel, their first album going nowhere. And it was kind of just kind of made, you know, with them participating. So it was built around them, that album. So, but I think, yeah, that it's interesting that, you know, most people who study, I think, or listen to a lot of popular music say it was really hard for bands to cross 
the divide between yeah. the 70s and 80s. And it's odd with Roxy Music, which are a pretty quintessential art rock, glam rock kind of band, experimental, hard mm-hmm. rock at times and so forth. And, and their greatest success was crossing that divide. You know, yes. This production. Listening to the Brian Ferry Orchestra, which is you know one of my favorite projects by him, I really, you know, him, you know, when I first heard about this project's reading, I thought, oh my God, it sounds so corny. This is not mm-hmm. going to work. <laughs> and then, you know, when I actually heard the records and heard the music, I love it, of course. But it made me even realize what a great songwriter Brian Ferry is. You know, I, I, I re-listened to his music again because of his new arrangements and the way it was recorded and the musicians that really put a focus on like, wow, these songs are really great. These are really great tunes. I agree. I mean, we talked a little bit about the the idea that chords become simpler, mm-hmm. you know, the, the notes become simpler over time. But his they always have a direction, right? This, right. this music always has a place to go. And um, I, that that is a big difference between a, a lot of music that, you know, by you know, contemporaneous and, you know, recent is whether or not, yeah, it has, you know, a place it's going, you know, you're going on this journey. Yes. And um, even though it repeats, you know, there's always this experiential thing. And even so, even like that hit single Avalon, I mean, he builds to that, you know, yes. soprano solo, which was a happy coincidence for them finding that singer. Uh-huh. Um, but that's one of the things I always thought. There's always a sort of arc, a trajectory. And um, so he does think through form. And uh, that's why if you have, if you just want to immerse in even the solo songs and just listen to these, the sounds and their orbs and so forth, I mean, there is really a kind of almost minimal, minimalist kind of development of these sort of Yes, patterns. that's true. Interesting. So I will continue to purchase every Roxy Music and Brian Ferry and Eno, Phil Manzanero, Andy McKay record. <laughs> I spent such a fortune already. But, um, <laughs> the teenager was a budget when they, on the island record years, you know, it was like, oh my God, I'm so poor now. Well, for the second uh, of those, uh, the Brian Ferry Orchestra, the Bittersweet album, mm-hmm. uh, he, he said, oh, would you write the liner notes for this? So I did. I wrote the liner notes. You wrote the liner notes. Yeah, oh, wow. He's, he sent me the tracks, right? Uh-huh. He sent me all the tracks before it was released. He said, these aren't the final mix or whatever. So, um, and uh, so I wrote the, I listened to them and then wrote up liner notes for that. And um, and then um, sent them back in and he had one tweaky at the end. He just went. And um, so, you know, liked them and then um, I sent them in. They were very happy with them. And, and then, uh, I got two huge cases of wine with yes. dropped off nice. at my office door. And they, those were, <laughs> I mean, I'm not much of a wine drinker, but you know, beer is more my thing, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I, I ran this selection by <laughs> the chair of the music department at Princeton who, who really knows wine and uh, some colleagues and they're like, wow, this is amazing. And they like basically oh, all this wine. I was left with nothing basically at the end of it, but it was a really, it was really, even that it was a sort of, classy kind of thing to yeah, do. Sure. Well, you know, when you live in the Roxy music world, it's a very good world. <laughs> it is. It's not my world, but I, I like to be brushed up against it. Sure. And, sure, this is, sure. and this is actually amazing for book music because our previous guest was Paul Morley, who wrote mm-hmm. a great book on Bob Dylan. But Paul Morley wrote the liner notes to um, Brian's uh, Dylan-esque album. Oh, yeah. So, and you're the next guest, and you wrote the liner notes to a Brian Perry <laughs> album. Funny. That's so funny. They were challenging to write. I mean, I had to listen to all of them and try mm-hmm. and figure out, like, which jazz musicians he's riffing on for this, that, the other, for these arrangements. Sure, and you know he's going to read it, so that's you always a, intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> Again, there he benefited from the great musicians in the band. The keyboardist um, mm-hmm. uh, that goes with them on tour used to um, help with some of those arrangements. So. Um, and, uh, yeah, but they're really smart for capturing that 20s sort of uh, pre-swing era kind of Yeah, and and, and again, such beautiful songs by him. I mean, he's just, you know, he's just a a superb songwriter, my feelings, yes. Um, Kimberly, for our next show, we need to find another writer who wrote a liner note. Because I feel like we're on a roll here. We can't, like, break, we can't break this thing. I feel very urgent about this. Kimberly, make it happen, please. Okay, okay, I'll work on it, Real Marcus. <laughs> so, um, 
Simon, we really enjoyed your book. I really enjoyed talking about Roxy Music with you and the whole Roxy Music world, and that we actually partied together. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't know it. We didn't know it. We're both we were both in the Brian Ferry party mode, and it was just so decadent and so great. At the Chateau Maman. Yes. <laughs> I don't think you we guys met, are too I was cool. Escorted out by the police. You'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember some ruffian being forced out. Yes. <laughs> but yes, thank you for you know for doing this. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Book Music, and join us next time. I do not believe this gentleman has written any liner notes, Tosh. Uh, he's a friend of yours, so you'll have to check with him. Uh, we're going to be reading a book by Jack Skelly called Dennis Wilson and Charlie Manson. He has to write liner notes for Brian Ferry. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, who knows? Maybe he has. Maybe he has. He has to. He within might surprise two, us. He has, to, he has to within two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I got to tell you something about that. If, uh -huh. if, if, sure. Oh, sure. So I met, um, I was just in LA and I went out to the Canyon Club and Walter Egan was playing, right? Ooh. And because um, he, and he <laughs> and, uh, he's part of Stevie Nicks Circle, so he invited me out to the show. And, I went and this person named Pamela DeMars, yes. DeMars showed up, the groupies groupie. Yes. And uh, I didn't really, <laughs> the subject came up of Charlie Manson and um, she had a date with him. Yes. Wow. She said, yeah, to this day, the idea that I kissed Charlie Manson <laughs> haunts me. If you live in Los Angeles, you can never avoid Charles Manson. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's like he's still out there. I'm yes, like, he is. Yeah. Be careful. Uh, time is still with us. I kissed Charlie Manson. It'll be the title of her book. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Manson ever wanted to write liner notes to a Brian Ferry record. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I went to Sound City Studio, and when Manson went in there, he was, um, you know, he had, he had designs on becoming a, a musician, right? So he recorded yes. some music there. He didn't pay the bill for oh, his demo. Of course not. Wow. Right. And so he pulled out a gun and he, he fired. And um, at the receptionist and the filing cabin, and there still has the ding of the bullet. Jeez. Oh, wow. It's wow. <laughs> oh, <laughs> creepy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty prevalent in the music scene in LA. It's, yes. uh, uh, any old timers definitely had some kind of exposure to him, I think. We have to bring this up next, our next show. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll be yeah. getting into I'm it. Like <laughs> <laughs> bring All right. I, like okay. I kissed Charlie Manson. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kimley, we're going to uh, we'll we'll put a we'll put a, a playlist together. Yes, yes. Uh, we've got playlists for all of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, we'll have a lot of fun with this one for sure. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news. And there's links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you, everyone. And thank you so much, Simon. It was really fun chatting with you. Very welcome. Absolutely. Thanks. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.